Now, the reason we did this whole countries with Canada thing is just to get your mind thinking about these different countries. Um, last week, we uh, looked at Uganda and we had the folks from Invisible Children here. If you if you weren't here for that, you missed an incredible time as these folks showed us what's going on in Uganda. You can go to InvisibleChildren.com and you can check out what's been going on with them. Um, you can you can get all kinds of resources there. The main thing that you need to get is is a DVD that just informs you about what's going on um, because it'll it'll change your life. We had some of the younger children here. Caleb, my son, was up here and some of his buddies. And uh, and I said to the church last week, I said, it won't surprise me if God calls somebody from this group to go to Uganda to be our um, our missionary. And uh, then when we got home, Caleb said, Dad, I think maybe I'm supposed to go. His uh, small group has been um, saving money so that they could send things over there. And uh, Caleb bought him one of those bracelets, you know. Um, if you go on the website and go, if you just do nothing else but go and get a bracelet, they're made in Uganda. All of the money goes back to Uganda. That's that's how they're making money. You'll get a DVD about a child. The first one is innocent. Um, and and so there, there are going to be eight different bracelets. The first one is white. I mean, it's a black bracelet, but it has two little white sections on it. And that's to remind us of innocent. And then in the spring, uh, later in the spring, there'll be another one summer about every two to three months. They're scheduled to come out with another bracelet, different color DVD about a different child. And uh, it is just powerful. And I, I really believe that God's going to call us to do some stuff. I know Alex is going to give some of his time and, and go out to their headquarters in San Diego just to volunteer, just to help them out. This summer, so there's all kinds of things we can do to make a difference in in children's lives. So that's what that's why we did Uganda. And um, uh, today we're going to be talking about what happened 50 years ago in uh, in Ecuador. Um, the Wow Donnie, y'all say that. Say Wow Donnie. Wow Donnie. Say it again. I want you to remember that name. The Wow Donnie lived deep in the Amazon jungle in Ecuador and they were considered savages and this was their this was their saying that they grew up they lived by this saying spear and live or be speared and die no one had ever come face to face with the Waodani tribe and lived to tell about it um oil workers from the United States would go down there they would get killed if they came across the Wild Donnie tribe, other tribes, these guys were just insane killers. And for five generations, eight out of ten adults died by homicide. You made my family mad. I kill you. Somebody in, in that family would then come kill me. They speared one another. And uh, back in 1956, January 6th, a group of five missionary couples, all of them young couples, fresh out of college, decided to give their lives to try to reach the uh, Wow Donnie tribe. And I, and I don't say that uh, lightly because the five men, the five husbands, literally gave their lives. After uh, 13 weeks of delivering gifts by airplane to this Wow Donnie tribe, um, they decided to meet them face to face. And so they, they bring their yellow plane and they land it on, uh, on a beach on the river. They called it Palm Beach. It's just wide enough, just long enough for them to land the plane. And they actually made contact with a young man and, and uh, the woman that he wanted to marry. And in their tribe, in their tribal system, you were not supposed to go anywhere before you were married without a chaperone. They went to the beach and, and this one man actually flew around in the yellow plane, was hollering down at his tribe members. You know, look at me, look at me. And um, 
Then when they got finished, they came back to their tribe, but they came back without their chaperone and they lied and said the reason that they were without the chaperone is because the five foreigners, the five white men down on the beach, um, they were afraid from, from, for their lives. And so they ran from them. It made the rest of the wild Donnie tribe angry. And so they go and they kill these five men. The men were Jim Elliott. I don't know if you've heard of Elizabeth Elliott, incredible ministry that she's had. Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Yodarian. They landed on this sandbar and, and they never came back off of it. Now, why did they do it? They did it because in their hearts, they believed that the wild Donnie mattered to God. And they knew that if someone didn't go tell them that the wild Donnie, they were going to die and they were going to spend eternity separated from Christ. And so they gave their lives. And the, the, um, the news of the killings made headlines worldwide. These savages, and you'll see some of the headlines in just a minute when we watch part of this video. Um, they call them savages. But the incredible thing is that 50 years later, there's a movie out in, in the, the movie theaters right now uh, called The End of the Spear. And it's told from, did you see it? Several folks have seen it. It's told from the tribe's point of view. The deaths of these five missionaries 50 years ago is not the end of the story. Because the wife of one of them, Elizabeth Elliot with her child, moves in with the Wild Ani tribe. And the sister, Rachel Saint, of the, air, of the airplane, airplane pilot who was killed, they move in with the tribe. Can you just imagine that? Someone kills your brother, someone kills your husband, your father, and they move in. And you're going to see the rest of the story. Um, instead of giving up, they decided to give their lives. And this is narrated by um, Steve Saint, who is the son of the airplane pilot who was killed. We're going to watch part of this, and then we're going to talk about a few things. Please do that. of the Andes was notified via shortwave messages through the Ecuador Jungle Radio Network that five missionaries who were making a survey in dangerous Indian territory had been out of radio contact with their base for over 24 hours. It was reported that the Missionary Aviation Fellowship plane that flew them in had been spotted from the air on a river bank or the beach of a small island in the river. We landed at Shell and I couldn't believe it. How many people were already there? People came down from Quito and then the national people started here and they started to come and the soldiers from the base there came. And those huge airplanes from Panama had come. I <laughs> 
They radioed from the helicopter. They said, we've been down to the beach. Ed McCulley, we found him, and he's dead. I thought, now if they're dead, then I'm going to have to see dead people, and they're going to be my friends, and I'll, it's going to be hard for me. I, oh. Well, he came around the corner, and the Indians saw the plane first, and they yelled, airplane, airplane. Frank, regardless of how you feel, you got to go. Well, I'm leading the party, so what am I going to do? I've got to organize this thing and get it done. But Major Nurnberg slapped his leg, meaning I see a leg down in the water. And then they found another one. And they pulled him and laid him on the beach there. The helicopter said, now there's a body down below here. But when I got so close, I could see it was Nate. Pulled up, long side. I could see he had a spear right here in his head. And he had a cut in his face with a machete right here. I could see that. But anyway, I was supposed to tie a rope on him. I couldn't do it. I tried. Couldn't do it. So then, the missionary that was with me, he saw I was having trouble. So he said, I'll do it. He tied him. We pulled him. My pilot is gone. Felt so badly, terrible. But hey, you can't feel this way now. Get going. You got to get out of here. Get these people. Do what you can and leave. Can't sit here and cry. So we did. Brought him up to the beach. There was Jim. There was Pete. There was Nate. And then two others of my missionary friends. And the Indians had gone way downstream. And they had brought Roger back. And because as soon as I saw him coming, he always wore blue jeans and his, and his T-shirt and tennis shoes. And I could see right away who it was. My buddy. Got it. Walked the trails with me. He's gone. So we laid him on the beach. They had guns with them. They had said that they would never kill the Alcas, even if they attacked them, because they made this straight statement, they're not ready for heaven, and we are.
Now, as I talked to the wives afterwards, I felt so badly that I couldn't bring their husbands back to home. But as I talked to them, I could feel that they were in this thing just as much as the men were. to my, my parents and Roger's parents that long before our letter got there, they had heard it over the radio. And my mom had written me back shortly after she heard. And she had told me that uh, if I wanted to come home, that she and daddy would, would help take care of the children. I thought that was a good idea at first. Long before that, I had given my heart to the Lord to be a missionary, so as a missionary, I had to stay. I get letters from people still from time to time with gifts saying, you know, we, we pray for you, we still pray for you, we still pray for your family, trust the, trust you're doing well. appeared at the door right about 12 o'clock and they said we've got two Alka women at our house do you want to see them and so I threw a couple of things into a carrying bag and and I set off down the trail here are these two girls and nobody could understand a word they were saying I said here you get in here and we're going to go back to my house The time came when they both came to me and they said, when that palm fruit is ripe, we're going home and we want you to come with us. And I said, do you think your people will spear me the way they speared my husband? And they put their arms around me and they laughed and they said, of course not, you're our friend. So the time came when Dayuma and the two Alka women went back to their people. Dayuma was gone for about three weeks before she returned to Arahuna with a small delegation of Waurani and an invitation for Rachel and Elizabeth to come live with the Waurani. I sort of remember being carried in a wooden chair in the back of one of the Quechua Indians, bumping along, my head bumping back against it and falling asleep on it. Then they gave me the name Nemo, which was one of Dayuma's sisters. She was macheted to death when they were wiping out Dayuma's whole family. And so I took Nemo's place in the kinship and then had the protection of Dayuma's family. But also I soon found out the enmity of her enemies. And Dayuma gave me a full course in Alka fleeing technique. The Waurani believed in a creator god whom they called Wangungi. Dayuma told them that Wangungi had marked a trail with carvings for them to follow. If they followed these carvings when they were alive, then they would find his house when they died. But these carvings told them that they shouldn't kill each other. Dawa was the first to believe what Dayuma said, and then her husband Kimo. <laughs> Dayuma, of course, was the preacher, 
And Ayuma, every Sunday, would corral everybody, you know, and tell them, you know, this is Sunday, this is God's day, so you have to come and, and I'm going to teach you the Bible, which she did. In the meantime, Rachel, during the week, would be teaching Dayuma. I was regularly receiving letters from both Jim Elliott's parents and my parents, and they would always be cautioning me. They were not at all happy with the idea that I was living in a prim primitive tribe with a bunch of naked alkas, and here was this precious little girl that belonged to them. Aunt Rachel and Elizabeth had very different approaches to helping the Waurani. To avoid the ongoing tensions, they felt that it would be best to separate. Two years after entering the tribe, Elizabeth, with Valerie, went back to work in Shandia. Then two years later, they returned to the States. I didn't say anything about clothing until we got into Miami airport, and I said to my mother, why is everybody walking around with clothing on? Because I had been so used to seeing everybody naked. The very first time I came into the tribe, they didn't know what to make of me. I don't think they knew if I was a girl or a boy. And then one of the old grandmothers came up and she grabbed my pants and pulled them out and started giving everybody a running commentary of what she was seeing, which to a nine-year-old boy is a little bit intimidating. After that, I can't remember any adjustment at all. They just made me feel like part of the tribe. I do remember one time that Aunt Rachel said to me, Kathy, you lost your daddy with a spear, but do you realize that every one of these children and most likely every one of the adults has had some relatives feared to death. And um, you haven't gone through anything that they haven't gone through. My first feeling about my father being killed by these same people was that it made me more one of them than it, than it separated me from them because a, a number of my friends' fathers had been speared. I was just one of the crowd. My father had been speared too. When I was in high school in the States, I decided that I wanted to be baptized. And I wanted the people that baptized me to be people that had had a significant role in my I was in the same water where dad's body had been thrown and at either side of me were the two men that in their youth had killed dad and and all I knew was that I really love these two guys. After 30 years of living out in the jungle with the Waurani, Aunt Rachel was diagnosed with cancer. She was treated in the United States, but when she found out that she was dying, she wanted to return home 
with the Waurani, whom she really considered family. She died on November 11, 1994, and I traveled from Florida to join the Waurani in burying her. Then the old people that had known me and taken care of me and adopted me into their families um, came to me and they said, um, we want you to come live with us. came around the last bend and we saw this long tarp set up kind of like a, a tent and that was to be our home for the next year. I remember meeting Minkai the first week we were down there and I remember this this older Waodani guy who would walk by my hammock. For some reason he would laugh a lot of the time. I love joking around so I started uh, poking at him through my mosquito net. I remember trying to get Minkai to be quiet and I would go, shh, Minkai, shh. And he would just look at me and say, like that. Usually we would do that to his wife. We would get her attention and then do that to her and she would just scold us. Minkai is one of the men who, who killed my grandfather and his four friends. Sometimes I will call him Mame, which means grandfather. He can't be a replacement, but he can be a grandfather to me. When it was time for Jesse to leave to go back to uh, work the summer before starting college, Jesse and Minkai were standing over just a little ways away, and they had their hands on each other's shoulders, and both of them were crying. I I'd never seen a wild honey man cry. We, uh, we did this a couple times, and... Finally, I got in the plane, and it was, I was still sobbing when I got in the shell. Jesse came to me and said, hey, Pop, there's just one thing I'd like for graduation. I'd really like for you to bring Grandfather Minkai up here to see me graduate. He was there uh, in the stands as I walked up and got my diploma. Minkai got to come to the States, and that has started these visits. He said, some of the foreigners are so nice that even when you're, when you're driving, you just stop by their houses and, and you go to one of, the, one of the openings in their walls, and he said they just open it for you, and, and then they start giving you food, and it's already hot, and it's already cooked and stuff. He said, I see those foreigners very, very well. When Minkai came back from the States the first time, he told the people that the foreigners are really big and fat because even when they go walking, they don't move their feet. They just get on the trail, and the trail moves. Well, Ompore, his wife, said, oh, you're talking wild. Minkai just kept saying, that's why all the foreigners are fat. They don't walk. They don't climb. They don't make gardens. But when they got to that one, Ompore just she just said, "Well, how are they going to live then?" 
mean, guy said they have these big food houses, and he said there's just piles of food. First, there's these young people, and they're standing at the place where you go out. And you smile as big as you can, and he said they pretend like they're not seeing you. And then he said, then after a little while, then they look at you and they smile. And he said, when they smile, boom, you can just go and take all the food with you. And I said, well, it's it's kind of like that. So I just took out my credit card and I said, first you have to give them something like this. And Minkai looked at all and he smiled. And he said, they just give it right back to you. Finally, I broached the subject and said, you know, you've learned how to fix things, and、uh, you've got your own little clinic, and now you're doing dental work. I said, now I need to go. You yourselves need to do it. And then the Waudani came to me, and they said, Bobby, who's going to do what you've been doing now? And I said, people, you need to decide that. And a few days later. They came and they said, "Well, what about if Tamantha does what you've been doing?" Things had come full circle because Tamantha was the son of Nankiwi, the George from Palm Beach, whose lie to the tribe had led to the killings of my dad and his friends. Only a few months after those spearings at Palm Beach, the tribe got angry with Nankiwi again and speared him too. In the old ways, a dying warrior could demand that his children be buried with him. They had realized that all the things that we'd been doing together really centered around the possibility of air transportation. Bito bito monito amoni bito neami bati bito wengoni agati bito wabano ebo wengi baven orongati bito inkayati kebai ni pangani na new money weko ta ebo ka new wapuni wengi wago inkay inkay inkayati erongi inyende wengi kerani nani jeke boimbandi jeke inyinda buba gumonga babenme onongi bimo The Waurani face a future of deep complexities, but anyone who visits them is moved by their simplicity.
There are some things, after all, that stay unchanged by time. Years ago, my dad Nate flew Tamantha's dad Nankiwi over his small Waurani village. Today, Tamantha can be seen flying over villages of the very same people. When he looks down, I know he sees family. And when we look up, our hopes soar with him. Incredible story, huh? I just can't imagine leaving a legacy like that. If you were to go and you were to ask those five men, you know, if somehow God would let us talk to those five men in heaven today and ask them, was it worth it? What do you think they'd say? Oh, yeah. Jim Elliott, we started with that quote. I don't know if you caught it. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And I thought one of the most incredible lines in the whole deal was when they said they had guns, but before they ever went to the wild Donnie people, they said, we will never defend ourselves. Why? said, because we are ready for heaven, but the wild Donnie aren't. Unbelievable that somebody would give their life for that. Um, if you were to see a house on fire... And you, you were to know that there were young children in that house, what would you do? Hello? You'd go in. If you were to see, you know, today you're driving home from church and you were to see a car on fire and there's small children in the fire, what would you do? You would risk your life to save them. Why? Because you can see very clearly the evidence of what is going to happen if you don't intervene. And you would feel... I don't know if you could sleep at night if you were to see that you had the opportunity to save a child's life and not do something. You can see very clearly the consequences. If I don't do something, that child dies. And I think part of the problem in the Christian church, in the church, is that we can see physically what will happen if somebody dies physically, but we forget what happens spiritually if someone dies without Jesus Christ. And so while we might risk our physical life to go save someone who's in physical danger, we don't risk anything to save someone spiritually who is going to die without Jesus Christ and live in eternity in a place called hell. And, you know, it's interesting that in the United States, 80 percent of people in America believe in heaven. But about 30 percent believe in hell. Did you know that that the. uh the source for both of those ideas is the same place. It's the Bible. The Bible is what tells us about heaven. Jesus tells us about heaven. But Jesus also tells us there's a place called hell reserved for those. Now, God doesn't send anybody to hell. Hell was created for Satan and his demons because they re, uh, rebelled against God. Hell is the place that people choose to go when they choose to turn their backs on God. And I've heard all kinds of rock stars and different folks say, you know, we are going to party in hell. We're going to bust hell wide open. 
You don't understand what hell is if you think it's going to be a party. If you know what loneliness is in this world, and then you put it in a place where you will probably be able to hear other people, but not ever see other people and be in a place of torment forever. And the Bible describes it as intense heat that doesn't burn up your soul, but it's incredibly hot. That doesn't sound like a party place to me. And, and my feeling is we have got to get to where we can see into the spiritual realm and see the consequences of someone's soul being separated from Jesus Christ for eternity. I believe that's what these men saw. These five men who gave their lives to go to the wild Donnie tribe. I believe God opened their eyes spiritually so that they could see the consequences if somebody didn't go. And they gave their lives. And look what's happened. I mean, you caught it, didn't you? Tementa. He is the son of, of one of the men who of the man who lied to the tribe and got all five missionaries killed. Come full circle. He had actually Nintiwi had actually been in the plane circling around the tribe 50 years ago, yelling down at the tribe. And the tribe finally figured out that Nintiwi was he was a liar and, and uh, they killed him. And that you heard it. They said that the uh, tribal warriors, they could demand that their children die with them. So one of his children was killed and put in the grave with him. But they were nursing Tementa. And she said, no, I don't want him to die. And look what he does now. He's the one who flies from village to village. I mean, I'm blown away that guys would would catch a glimpse of eternity and they would leave a legacy like that. Uh, I was driving back. My, my mom's 80th birthday was this weekend. And last night, Daryl called to see where we were um, because we were driving 500 miles yesterday in order to get back into town so that we could be at church today and. And he told me that one of one of the men that I respect more than any man died. I didn't even know the guy had died. His funeral was on Friday. He was the man that I served um, here in town with, Reggie Bowman. And Reggie was one of the most incredible men I have ever known in my life. Inspired me to be more like Christ. And I just know story after story. He's probably in his early 60s and he died of cancer. He had he had resigned from his church position in in, uh, Abilene so that he could go and give his services for free to um, churches all over the United States that that couldn't afford for him. He was an education minister, but just incredible Bible teacher, Bible scholar. And uh, Reggie died this last week after after a battle with cancer. And Janie and I, last night, we were praying when we were in bed, and she said, pray for Darlene, his wife. And, you know, and I did. I prayed for her, but I, I started thinking about the legacy that Reggie left behind. I'm part of that legacy. I know people in this town that are now um, Christians because of what Reggie Bowman did when he was here. He's only here two years, and he impacted people's lives. And I think if you were to ask Reggie today, was it worth it? Reggie would say, yes. Because I guarantee you, there were people who went to heaven before Reggie did. And when Reggie bust into the gates of heaven and walked down and he saw his Savior for the first time, I guarantee you there were people in heaven that said, Reggie, I'm here because of you. And so my question then becomes to you, is anyone going to heaven because of you? I mean, how hard is it to invite somebody to church? What would you give if you could see the results the consequences of someone dying without Christ. What would you give? How hard is it to invite somebody to church? How hard is it to pray for them? How hard is it to take a meal to them and say, I'm going to pray until they get saved? Saved from what? 
Eternal separation from God and from other believers. We've got to become serious about this. We say that, that New Life Community Church, our church exists, this is our mission statement, to reach people who are far from God. And you know, we've gotten a pretty good handle on, on saying we've got to reach people in this city. But we kind of forget sometimes that not only are we supposed to reach people far from God in this city, we're supposed to reach people far from us. The Bible says to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is sin. The only thing that matters that will last for eternity is people, souls, not jobs, not houses, not toys, people. What are you investing your life in? You've heard the saying that you can't take it with you. But the Bible tells us that you can send it on ahead by investing in the lives of people who are going to heaven. First Timothy 619 says, by doing this, they will be storing up real treasure for themselves in heaven. It is the only safe investment for eternity. And they will be living a fruitful Christian life down here as well. If you want to be like Jesus, then you have to have a heart for the whole world. You can't be satisfied with just your family and your friends coming to know Christ. You know, my family got together for my mom's 80th birthday, and this is the first time all of us, well, actually, we missed one. There were 23 out of 24 there um, this weekend. And as I'm driving back to Palestine, Texas, you know, I'm thinking, man, it would be great if my family could get together more often. But that's not the path that God has chosen for us. Our family, and I've told you this before, our family is in this room. I love my brothers. I love my sister. love my mom and dad. But they're all saved. And the whole family is saved. Nieces, nephews, my kids were the last ones. I got to baptize Hannah a month ago. She's the last one of my immediate family that didn't know Jesus Christ. And God has called us to spend the rest of our lives reaching people who are far from Him. Because I'll get to see mom and dad in heaven. And it makes me sad that I don't get to hang out with them anymore. But it makes me more sad to think about somebody dying and going to hell. Because I, just, I think that's unacceptable. If I have breath in this body... I want to be helping people learn how to come to Christ. There are over six billion people on earth, and the Bible tells us you have never looked in the eyes of someone who does not matter to God. Jesus said in Mark 8:35, "If you insist on saving your life, you will lose it. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. If you live for yourself, you'll be an empty person. The key to really living is to offer your life for something that outlasts your life. I wish I could have been at Reggie's funeral. I mean, I guarantee you the place was packed out. And I guarantee you whoever preached his funeral had incredible things to say about. All the way back to when he went to Montana and he was a, a Baptist student union minister camping um, in Montana National Park. What is it? No, it's Glacier National Park. He told me stories about taking college students out there and being so stinking cold. They were in the tent and their breath would frost up and freeze on the tent, you know, and then they realized it was warmer to sleep outside the next night. The guy's been all over the United States leading people to Christ. And that's the type of legacy I want to leave. Our statement is serving God's purpose in this generation. In, in Acts chapter 13, there's a little phrase that talks about David, King David, a man after God's own heart. Own heart, And it says, David served God's purpose in his generation, then he died. And if you think about it, I can't serve in David, King David's generation. I don't live then. I live now, and it's no accident 
that I was born in 1964. It's no accident that in 1995 we moved to Palestine, Texas. And it's no accident that you are here in 2006 for just such a time as this. And Janie told me that when I die, because I told her I'm dying first. She doesn't get to die first. I'm, I'm being selfish. But she said she's going to put me in my recliner. She's going to somehow, you know, dip it in stone or something. And that's going to be where, where she buries me. But then she's going to engrave on the stone. He served God's purpose in his generation. Then he died. And I said, there's nothing better you can say about me. And I'm willing to bet. That getting up every morning, having breakfast, going to work, slaving like a dog for somebody else, coming home, eating supper, going to bed, maybe watching some TV, I'm willing to bet that doesn't do it for you. That that's not enough. And I'm willing to bet that today God's going to raise up in some of you all a desire to make a difference for all eternity. And I keep telling you, when we get this right... People will be knocking down the walls, the doors to come into this church. And we won't be able to have one service. We'll move to multiple services and we'll be moving to other buildings. We'll be building a building. I really believe God's going to do that someday. But one or two of us can't carry the load. All of us have to. Would you take your registration cards and, and just fill out the front?